Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show that connects East and West. My name is Jason. I'm originally from California, but now living in beautiful Wuhan, China. And today with me is Bebe. Yay! Hi! Hi, Jason! How are you? Wonderful. Sorry, I sound a bit excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy um, about our show today. I think it's mm. going to be great. I do too. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Let me introduce our guest, Jerry. He is a retired educator in China with 18 years living in the greater Bay Area's Zhongshan City. He is well known on Twitter for having traversed slowly on back roads through China by bicycle. He self-describes as often disparaged in Western media as just a retiree with a bike, but understands China for its culture. He has a master's in cross-cultural change management and advises Western business managers on how to better their relationships relationships with Chinese and a diverse staff. Welcome to The Bridge, Jerry. Hi. Thank you very much. Hi, Jerry. Thank you. Hi, Jason and Bebe. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> now, just before the show, we were mentioning that you have not just spent a lot of time in China, but you've actually lived in different countries. You grew up where, Jerry? I grew up in the UK. I was born in the northeast of England. And uh, when I was 11, my family moved to the southeast. So uh, I became an Essex boy. I worked in central London for 10 years. I was a police officer. Wow. There. And, and then, uh, yeah, when I left the police service, it was because I was married to an Australian girl and she wanted to go home. Oh. Mm. And so my, uh, my then wife, two kids, and I flew to Australia where I became a permanent resident, first of all, and then a citizen. So now I, I'm in China living with two passports, but my visa is in the Australian passport. So I, de- I identify as an Australian. Oh. So wait, can you be a police officer as a British citizen in Australia? Technically, yes, you could. I didn't join the police in Australia. I, I, I actually entered the security industry. Uh, I applied to join the police, but there were barriers put in front of me. But mm. the, oh. being a permanent resident wasn't an issue. Mm. I, I got the permanent resident visa before I went to Australia. So the only criteria was that within two years, you must become an Australian citizen at that time. I'm not sure what the mm. rules are now, but that was back in 1987. So wow. I'm getting old, you can tell. <laughs> so you were able to do that through marriage. That's pretty neat. My my wife wasn't actually mm. born in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was born in the UK, but her parents migrated when she was a baby. Oh. She had two sisters born there who were actually naturalized, not naturalized, they were Australians, they were born there. And uh, they all went back to the UK when my wife was about 15. So she identified as Australian. She wasn't technically an Australian. But her two sisters who were both took up their nationality. And then we were able to apply for what they call family reunion visa. Uh, it, it, it was a, a long process. It wasn't difficult. It took, a, it took more than six months to get sorted out and quite mm. expensive too. What expensive. But, mm. And then you're living in China. Yeah. After mm-hmm. all the UK and Australia experience, <laughs> you're living in yeah. China. I just passed a milestone just a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact. I've now lived in China longer than I lived in Australia. Oh, wow. It was uh, 17 years and four months in wow. Australia, and now I'm 17 years and 
about six months, maybe seven months in China. No, I just want to say that um, listening to Jerry talk, I feel like uh, I have flashbacks of the Downton Abbey. Have you seen that TV show? <laughs> he sounds like one of those aristocrats <laughs> from the TV series. Of course, yeah. Definitely upstairs. <laughs> Have you watched that show, Jason? No, I, I'm sorry, I haven't. The only British show I've ever seen is The IT Crowd. So am, am I from upstairs or downstairs? <laughs> this is the important thing. I think I prefer to be upstairs. Huh. Okay, that makes you sound a bit nerdy, but Downton Abbey was really, it was really good. And I was all the way, I watched all the way till the fourth episode when, I think his name was Mike, when Mike died in an accident. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm not watching anymore. But anyhow, since you haven't watched it, so you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it tells us what you think about Mike. Well, yeah, I guess. He he, he was quite good looking yeah. and all that. <laughs> anyhow, yeah. so it's fascinating uh, just hearing that little bit about you. Uh, what Jason uh, introduced. And I, I have lots of questions, but I think I should let Jason start. I, I do too, yeah. So, you know, you, you say you identify as Australian, which is really interesting because you live longer in England, but now you're here in China. So I guess one a good question is, what brought you here? Why are you here and why did you stay? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I came here on an eight-month contract in 2004, and uh, that contract was one school year. But the school year had already started, mm. and the organization I was working for in Australia, uh, it, and like many things in China, and you, you both uh, know what I'm talking about here, a last-minute decision was made. You've got the contract. You can start on Monday morning. And they said, mm -hmm. yeah, we might have the contract, but we don't have the teacher for the job. So they sent out uh, this, this uh, language center in Australia, sent out uh, uh, their own, one of their own senior teachers. And um, she was mm -hmm. here for a couple of months while they tried to find a teacher. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for someone. It was a, it was a very wealthy school in Zhongshan. Mm -hmm. And it was a very wealthy school. And the kids were a little bit problematic. So they were looking for someone that had some kind of background in, in discipline. <gasps> a police officer. And they found me because, they, <laughs> yeah, it, on my resume, it said that I'd been a police officer. So they interviewed me, and I, I was I was apparently the 68th person wow. they interviewed. Wow. And uh, I got the job, and the, the following week I was in China. Uh, it was that fast. But my reason was I, I was I How was How problematic were the kids? My goodness. <laughs> they weren't. They were great. They were fantastic. There was no issues with them. They were rich kids. Um, they, they, the school is still there. It's a, it's a, an international school. Uh -huh. It has a lot of rich kids, and they do tend to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit less disciplined mm. than most Chinese. You know, we get this image of Chinese school kids mm -hmm. as very studious, very well-disciplined, right. very diligent. And these were none of that, but they, we had a lot of fun. Uh, they, I, I did have great fun. And really all, all my job was to prepare them for university. Mm. I arrived in the school on a Wednesday at uh, nine o'clock in the morning. And I'd arrived in China at two o'clock the morning, or the same morning, two, two a.m. I'd arrived in Johnson. My flight was uh, quite a lengthy delay, and I got in. I got into bed about three o'clock, and at seven o'clock there was someone there to pick me up. Mm -hmm. So I, I was pretty tired. And the first thing they said to me was, uh, "You're going to be the IELTS teacher." And I said, mm -hmm. "IELTS? What's that? How do you spell it?" <laughs> uh, I had never heard of this, and it's, it, I, mean, I went on to become an IELTS mm -hmm. examiner years later. So um, that was my last 
full-time position in China so what is a, was as an IELTS examiner. What is an IELTS teacher? What is IELTS? The International English Language Testing System. If oh. you want to study overseas, you need an IELTS or a TOEFL test. Okay. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who are IELTS examiners in Beijing, actually. Oh. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's over 300 in China. So did you, like, show up on the first day with a, what do you call it, like a baton? And you're, like, police suit? <laughs> 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 I give them the impression they needed. I wore a jacket and tie, and uh, that was about oh, as oh. as, as uh, formal as it got. When I when I wandered into class, um, it was a brand new, and and it had been open two months, but they still didn't have a door mm. on the class. It hadn't. The door had been taken away to be fitted. <laughs> the uh, windows didn't fit properly because they hadn't been very well built, and the classroom had eight of these ro- uh, oscillating fans on the roof. On the ceiling, mm. and mm-hmm. and basically, I stood under one of those fans all day because it was it's incredibly hot, yeah, hot yeah, and humid. Uh, so yeah, I, I after the first day, I didn't wear the jacket or the tie, and after the second day, I was taking two or three shirts to work <laughs> yeah. a day. Oh wow! It was it was really really hot. By the time I left there, a year less than a year later, eight or nine, well, ten months later, I think I left. I extended my contract, but by the time I left. Uh, it was it was a very mm-hmm. different classroom. It was very modern, ultra modern, mm-hmm. modern computer PowerPoint presentations. Mm-hmm. Everything was interlinked, and it had air conditioning. It still had a chalkboard, though. That's something that really surprises me about China. It's for nostalgia. It, it may very well be, but the, you know, you've got this fantastic system. You've got an uh, audio visual system that is second to none in the world, and then chalk dust. Humidity and chalk dust don't go very that's well. That's true. That's true. It's part of John Santi. And, and can we maybe take a moment uh, to explain the location of the Greater Bay Area that we are talking about? Because people might mistake it for other places. Can you just like you know pinpoint it on the on the map? If they really want to know, they can watch my last uh, video on YouTube. By by sheer coincidence, just a few days ago, I put a video mm-hmm. onto YouTube about how. The Greater Bay Area, Hong Kong and Macau are assimilating each other. Mm. No one's taking over Hong Kong. No one's taking over Macau. Mm-hmm. It's a fact that thousands and thousands of people from both those places are coming into the Greater Bay Area. Mm. So effectively, what we, what we used to have is something called the Pearl River Delta, the PRD. Right. And that was that was made up of on the mm. north side, or in fact, it's probably you call it the east side of the Pearl River is Shenzhen. On the west side or the south side of the Pearl River is um, Zhuhai. Mm. Now, Zhuhai links to Macau, Shenzhen links to Hong Kong. I think most people know that, mm. but not many people know about the Zhuhai-Macau link. Mm. Now, if you go further north of Zhuhai, then there's Zhongshan. That's the city I live. Further mm. north of that, and you've got Jiangmen and Foshan. And on the other side, you've got Shenzhen, then Dongguan, and then it links up with um, Guangzhou and Foshan. Mm-hmm. And that used to be those few cities were the Pearl River Delta. Mm-hmm. Now it's expanded out to places like uh, Jiaoqin and Jiangmen. Mm-hmm. These these are the Pearl. What the Pearl River Delta used to be is now the Greater Bay mm-hmm. Area because it includes nine cities instead of the original six cities. And that and that's really all it is. It's mm-hmm. it's it's an economic area where one of the great things that they've done here is they've they've opened up two areas on the mainland. One in Shenzhen, which is called. Um, Shanghai and one in Zhuhai, which is called Henqing. These two areas are expansions of the uh, SARs, mm. the Special Administrative Regions of oh. Hong Kong and Macau. Oh. So those two areas have the same laws as the mainland and the same mm. laws as the SAR. Oh. So people working in those areas are are 
cross-trained. Mm. You can be a doctor there. You can be a lawyer, an accountant. You can be any mm. professional. Mm. And there is a, there's, a, there's an exam to take that ensures that you understand both the legalities or the, the financial arrangements. Mm -hmm. Effectively, in the case of um, uh, Macau, they're now 12 times bigger. Macau is now 12 times bigger than it used to wow. be through the integration of Henqing mm. into the Macau legal and uh, demographic system. It's still on the main. In fact, Henqing is an island, but there's mm. a bridge to it. It's, it's linked to the mm -hmm. mainland. But it, it's, um, I think it's 12 times bigger than Macau. Now, in the case of Henqing in Shanghai, uh, uh, yeah, in, in Shenzhen, it's not that big, but it is allowing for all of Hong Kong's uh, IT, mm -hmm. Hong Kong's educational systems. And you know, lots of universities are making huge investments. Lots of corporations are making huge investments. Mm. And these, these two areas are now an opportunity for both of those mm. regions, mm. the SARs, mm. to expand into the mainland mm -hmm. rather than China taking over those two SARs mm. in 2047. I'm certain they won't. Mm. They won't need to because the SARs are coming across to the mainland and they're assimilating into in basically Hong Kong, Macau and Guangdong mm. have similar cultures. Mm -hmm. Now, people would argue this and say, well, Hong Kong culture is nothing like mainland China. And to a point, I agree, but they are Cantonese. They, they share the same language. Mm -hmm. they, share, mm -hmm. they share the same music. They share a lot of things in their culture and their history. Mm. And so, you know, you've got the same language, you've got the same laws, you've got uh, expanded property. You've also got loads of incentives, financial incentives, tax incentives, mm. social incentives to move across to these areas. Mm. So mm. it's, it's going to be a great assimilation process. The next 25 years are really going to be interesting in this. Region. Wow, Jason, we can do a show just on this. I think we just did. <laughs> yeah. How do we look for you on YouTube or other platforms that you put your videos on? Just easy. Just search Jerry Gray. In, in fact, probably a good idea. My name is spelled G-R-E-Y, Jerry Gray. Mm. And um, there is a professional wrestler called Jerry Gray in America in the <laughs> WW, whatever it is. Yeah. Mm. And there's also an artist in Canada called Jerry Gray, who's these, these guys has got their own websites and are mm. quite famous. Mm. So if you search Jerry Gray, China, then you get mm. me. Mm -hmm.
wanted to, because you were talking about chalkboards, I was hoping, because I have not been in China 18 years. I've only been in China 10 years. I'm sorry, baby. I was hoping for a little bit of an outsider's perspective. Sure. How would you describe the difference between China now and China like 20 years mm. ago? Like, what are some of the changes oh that you've God. seen? <laughs> <laughs> we only have 14 minutes. <laughs> I, I would say in terms of the cities, the infrastructure, the when I came here, one of the things I can remember in that very first classroom, standing under the oscillating fan, being told that there will be a high-speed train link to Beijing mm. in a few years' time, and I kind of laughed at that. You know, that'll take years. You mm. know, don't worry about that, because coming from, coming <laughs> right. from two countries where infrastructure does take a long time, mm. it was a surprise. Uh, and then I laughed out loud when they told me there'll be a bridge to Hong Kong, and I said, "Do you know where Hong Kong is?" And I got a map out and showed them. They're never going to build a bridge across there. And, and they have. And it's there. It's been there for a couple of years now. So in terms of infrastructure, it's, it's just inconceivable. You cannot comprehend the speed of change in infrastructure. My local mm. hospital is at least 10 times the size it was when I arrived here. Wow. Um, there are in, in the city where I live, I think there are four new universities have been built in the last 18 years that I've been here, there's two vocational colleges that have been built, which are not universities. Mm. They're, they're training programs for particularly young kids mm. who want to go into the, the trades. Um, that kind of infrastructure is, is inconceivably different. It, there's mm. just no way to mm. describe that. But probably the most important thing is in rural areas. Mm -hmm. uh, when I traveled in 2014, it was very common for my roads to turn into dirt tracks mm -hmm. and then just mm -hmm. lose themselves in the desert. You know, it's, <laughs> you're, you're riding along this road and suddenly you're in a quarry uh, and you've got to walk because it's just <laughs> broken rocks on the ground. So you're literally picking up your bike and, and all of its mm -hmm. uh, stuff and walking through. I, I've traveled through the same regions, and we're talking about places like Ningxia, Gansu, Xinjiang uh, region. These places ha mm. now have everywhere mm. you go, there mm. are tarmac mm. roads. Uh, if you're going into the rural areas, I mean, the real mm. rural areas where there didn't used to be any roads at all, uh, and you'd see people walking up these roads with donkeys uh, or donkey carts. Mm -hmm. Now they have either tarmac or concrete roads. And I, I read that there is not a single village left in China that doesn't have a road leading into it. So this is the poverty alleviation program. Mm. There's, a, there's a saying in China that if you build a road, if you want to get rich, first of all, build the path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and they've done, they've mm. very much done that. Every single town I've ever been to, ever, every single place I've been to in China has um, Wi-Fi, 4G. It's just, mm. it's inconceivable that, I, I go to Australia sometimes on a trip and I have to go to the local coffee shop just to make a phone call mm. because it doesn't work in, in the city center. It doesn't work because the buildings block it out. The signal is blocked out. In, in China, you get into an elevator and it, it's, it's Wi-Fi enabled. <laughs> it, it's yeah, seriously, <laughs> you, you never, you wouldn't understand this living in China. If you, if you didn't live in China, you wouldn't understand what I mean by this. Mm -hmm. If you live in Australia, you expect your telephone to drop out as you're walking around the city mm. center. Oh. I've never had that happen in China. Mm. Why never. city center? Like, because buildings block, they block the signal. Oh. In, buildings oh. block the signal. Now, the other thing is in rural areas of China, you, you, sorry, in rural areas of Australia, 
you wouldn't have signal at all. You have to use a landline. Mm. Rural areas of Australia don't have, um, they don't have Wi-Fi. Many of them don't have Wi-Fi. They, they don't have uh, 4G. There's no 5G. I don't know if there's 5G at all in Australia. Uh, you know, when you think about the changes in China, when I came here, you know, I, I came with, this is, my wife still laughs at this. I arrived here with uh, two bottles of shampoo two bottles of, uh, of a shower gel. What? Yeah, I, I did the two. I also brought tiny, the little traveler ones yeah. because I didn't know what I would find. And then I realized quickly I didn't need them. They, yeah, they put me into an apartment <laughs> above a shopping center that had everything that I'd carried. I paid I paid excess <laughs> luggage to get this stuff across here and then found I could afford it cheaper <laughs> downstairs. Yeah, it is fascinating. You are very famous uh, among a lot of people on social media because have you ever seen the movie uh, Wall Street? It's 1987. Charlie machine uh it's called wall street and the character in this movie keeps saying to his girlfriend in the movie oh i want to ride a motorcycle across china and that's like his like his big dream so jerry you are famous for having bicycled across china could you tell us a little (laughs) bit about that experience why did you do it what did you see yeah why would you do that bicycle china is pretty big (laughs) right it it is i really want to hear about it sounds awesome actually it sounds super awesome the question is not really why would you do it, but why would you do it again and again and again? I've done it four times now, or three times mm. across. Mm. Basically, um, wow. back in 2013, I think it was, I was uh, I was in my mid-50s and very conscious of the fact that both my mother and my grandfather, her, her father, I take after mm. that, that side of the family. And um, I have a kind of a roundish figure. Mm. That, that's a, a, a euphemistic way of saying I'm a bit fat. <laughs> and I, I was aware that both my grandfather and mother had heart issues when they hit 60, in their 50s, before they, my grandfather had mm. three heart attacks before mm. he was 60, mm. uh, before, yeah, before he was 60 in his 50s. And I was aware of that. And I'm looking in a mirror and looking at myself and thinking it's your turn next because I was in my 50s and a little mm. overweight. And I just came out of the shower and said to my wife, I'm going to ride across China. On a bike and she's like, to Tibet, and she said, you "Yeah, right." Yeah, she said, "You haven't, you haven't got a bike." <laughs> I said, yeah, I know that. <laughs> uh, Is that a problem? That's not well, the biggest problem. It's not the biggest problem, but it was, it was, it was certainly not insurmountable. But it was a problem. But and I, I went out and bought it, bought myself a bike, and uh, started riding to and from school. The school was eight kilometers away that I was working in at that time. Different school. Wait, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. So wait, so one day in the shower, mm-hmm. you yeah. decided. I'm going to ride across China on a bike. Yeah. And that's yeah. it? There were like no period of time where you like <laughs> deliberate a little bit, like think about I, why I, I should do this and where I should I get, go. I get all my... I get a lot yeah. of my inspiration in the shower. I don't know why. Well, I have a question, actually. When you were planning your trip, did you have like a topographical map and you're like avoiding mountains or are you just like, OK, that's the way I'm going? <laughs> I did. I did. It took me 18 months to, to finally uh, get going. Uh, I, I put together a 22 page um, mm. researched document about the best route to take to avoid the major peaks. Ooh. And um, mm. yeah, the, the highest I was going to go mm. was 2,600 mm. uh, 2, meters. Wow. And you were you're talking about you're going from like Zhongshan City yeah. from like southern yeah. part of China correct yeah. all the way well like we, were you biking all the way yeah. there yeah what I decided to do then was I, I decided to ride from the border of Macau to the border of Kazakhstan through Xinjiang and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, 4,500 kilometers and yes there's some mountains wow. but the highest you go is 2,600 um, the, the hardest mountains are actually getting out of Guangdong believe it or not we were on 
day three or four, and we hit the what they call the Nanling Mountain Range. Uh, in if you know any geography of Zhong, of Guangdong, uh, around the area of um, Qingyuan, and uh, there's a town of Qingyuan, which is actually it's it's so far away that it took two days to get mm. there. From Qingyuan to Lianzhou is very mountainous, and then you get through uh, Lianzhou and into Hunan Province, and then you start to flatten out a bit. And then you go all the way through to Hubei, cross the river. It's it's relatively flat. Then you hit the mountains in in Shanxi, and that's really really nasty. But the worst of them were definitely in northern Guangdong. Guangdong. Were you camping? You did you bring a tent? Yeah, we carried a tent, but we didn't need it until way the other side of Xi'an. Xi'an is pretty much in the middle of China. They call it Northwest China, but if you look at a map of Xi'an, of, of China. There are a couple of cities that you could say, and Wuhan is one of them where you are, Jason. It's it's around the middle of China. Mm -hmm. So depending on your start point then, uh, or, or your finish point where your direction is, then you'd either go through Xi'an or, or Wuhan to get to anywhere else in China, I think. <clears throat> uh, or if you're going through the middle of China. I have a question burning in my brain. Yeah. Like, I just want to clarify something. Okay. Were you like biking all the way? From Zhongshan City? Yes. Wait, yes. so you are not like, you know, yes. taking your bike. You get on a train and get to the next city and then bike no. on the like road. And then you take a train to the next city. No. You were biking all the way across China? I've got it tattooed on my arm. I cycled 4,500 and... <gasps> Hang on a second, 4,931 oh kilometers. Because yeah. when Jason said you, you know, traversed slowly on back yeah. roads, I thought that was for like entertainment, you know, on weekends. You would ride on a bike around China for a bit for fun. <laughs> Sometimes do that so too. So we're talking about something major here. So your first trip, Jerry, how long from the beginning to the end point did you actually spend? Well, the, fir the first trip was an interesting one because we, we, we tried to, I, I linked it to a charity mm, and tried mm. to raise some money for the charity. We, we raised quite a lot of money for disabled people inside of Zhongshan. There was two of us an Irish guy and myself. Mm. Interesting that neither of us could really speak Chinese either. So that was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> um, we started at the border of Macau and Macau-Gongbei uh, border. And then we cycled north. And our first night stop was in the northern suburbs of Zhongshan, the city that we cycled from the day before <laughs> to get to the border, which, which is kind of strange. Um, but then uh, after that, we were on our own. We had a, a group of friends with us. It was a bit of a it was a bit of a circus actually mm, for the mm. first day, and we had a group of friends with us. Travelled with us as far as uh, Huadu, which is near Guangzhou Airport. And after we got to that area, we were on our own. Mm. And uh, both the, the Phil Bean and myself, we we both had this kind of thing in our head that we would be letting people down if we don't at least. A good distance. Very far. Yeah. When we got into Hunan, <laughs> it was about day seven or eight, we got into Hunan and we were like high-fiving each other. You know, we've, we've left Guangdong finally mm. and, uh, and we got over those mountains, which are not very high, but they're brutally steep. Mm. And then we got uh, mm. through Hunan and into, we crossed the river, the Changjian, and then into Hubei. In fact, I think we were in Hubei before we crossed the river, but I'm not entirely certain geographically where we were there. Um, we were just following a compass, believe it or not, in a northerly direction. Wow! But I had the, I had a route map, and we just didn't worry about it. I, I carried all these maps. I carried a tent. Mm. We didn't need the tent until we were beyond Xi'an, because every single piece of dirt in China is being used for something. <laughs> it's either turned into a road, a shopping center, it's a car park, it's a, a, an industrial city, 
it's a residential, it's farmland, whatever it is, it's being used. And then when you get the other side of uh, Xi'an, then you get past Xianyang and you're in the countryside for the mm. first time. Mm. And that's like about day 30 mm. that we wow. were about there. My wife and a friend joined us in um, Xi'an for a couple of days rest, stop, stop days. Mm. And then when uh, we said goodbye to them, we headed north. And, um, and then after we got a couple more days north, we started to turn west northwest and into Gansu, Ningxia. The, the entire journey from the border of Macau to Urumuchi was 57 days. Hmm. And then this this is where we did cheat a little bit. And this is the bit that you're you're talking about, Bebe. Mm-hmm. We, we had um, my wife, Phil's wife, mm. and a couple of other people, including both of our mothers-in-law, joined us there. And we rented a couple of drivers with a couple of cars. Mm. And mm-hmm. we had support vehicles for the ride to the border of Kazakhstan. So from Urumuchi to to the border was was an assisted ride where quite often we weren't carrying any baggage. Sometimes, mm. uh, particularly through through snow-capped mountains, wow. mm-hmm. where we were actually riding in blizzards, we oh said, fuck this. And we, uh, we, we threw the bikes on the roof of the cars and um, we just went down the hill to better weather. Uh, so, yeah, we got some photographs of us ride, riding through a blizzard, but um, we were riding without carrying our backpacks and our bags and things like that. So the, it was assisted from Urumuchi to the border of Korgash. Wow. Wow. That's uh, amazing. Is, yeah. That's, that's a big, that's a big train city where lots of, gas comes in and out from Russia through Kazakhstan. So we're hmm. talking about two guys yes. who don't speak Chinese. Yeah. Just cycling across China for like months? Yeah. I, wow. Phil doesn't speak any or didn't speak any Chinese at all at the time. Um, he, mm-hmm. He's back in Ireland now, so I get he's married to a Chinese lady, so I guess he doesn't speak much either. Mm. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm functional in, in Chinese. Okay. I get a lot of food and get directions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But uh, it was quite limited, quite challenging. You get to meet people and they have a conversation. Mm-hmm. We've got a great video of me having a conversation with a, a, a Muslim guy mm. in Gansu somewhere. And he was telling me that Barack Obama was a Muslim. And I'm looking at him <laughs> I think he just told me. I'm on video saying, I think he just told me that Barack Obama's a Muslim. And Phil goes, yes, I think he did. <laughs> Phil couldn't understand the word. Were you guys video? <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny. Yeah, we took, we made a, we made a few. Oh. The funny thing is we weren't doing this for video blogging or vlogging or anything like that. We just did this for, it was a bit of fun, mm. raise, mm-hmm. raise money for charity. I mean, there mm. are days when you say this is not fun, for sure. <laughs> um, particularly those mountains. But yeah, it was generally speaking, it was, it was it was something we wanted to do. We raised money for charity, mm. and um, it became something of a, a, a kind of. It's not. I'm not unique in having done this, mm. but uh, I'm possibly unique in having <laughs> boasted about it online. <laughs> they, I, I've got an even better story for you, and and this mm. is the subject mm-hmm. of a future interview for you. The following year. My wife, thinking mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't let Jerry get one better on me, decided that she wanted to walk huh. to Beijing. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So walk she, to Beijing. That's amazing. Yeah. She walked with an American friend. And my wife is Chinese, <laughs> so uh, she, she didn't have the language mm-hmm. barriers, but she walked with an American friend four and a half months wow. from Zhongshan to Beijing. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, feel so, I feel so lazy now. <laughs> well, in, two, in 2019, we decided to collaborate and we, we flew to Uruguay. 
vulnerable cheap. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. Then we had our bikes shipped there. We're, we're in the in the garden of the hotel that we were staying in. We reassembled our bikes, uh, got everything ready, and the next morning set out to ride home. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So so we've I've done that journey twice, once from east to west and once from west to east. You talk about some of the most difficult terrain that you went across, you know, all the cities, all the areas in the countryside that so few people end up actually seeing because you saw like contiguous land for Mm -hmm. months. Uh, What would you say are some of the more beautiful places that maybe people don't know about? It's very hard to pick a beautiful place in China because Mm -hmm. literally it is so beautiful. It really is uh, an amazing, even in Guangdong, the Greater Bay Area, as soon as you're out Mm -hmm. of the cities, Mm -hmm. you're seeing green hills, rolling hills. It's a very, very beautiful and diverse country. Um, my favorite, my personal favorite is probably Ningxia. I like Ningxia very much. Mm. It's it's desert and it's being de-desertified. Right, right. Uh, and mm. you can see there's a lot of stuff going on in Ningxia. Ningxia was probably, it's not a province, it's a, an autonomous region, the Ningxia Hui mm. autonomous region. And it's, um, it's very, very Muslim-oriented and... Every village has the most colorful and beautiful mosque. You know, th- this is an architectural thing that surprises mm-hmm. you about China. Mm. Uh, and especially if you, if you don't know China, you, you assume that there's no mosques in China. Mm. You have no idea that when you get into places like Ningxia and Gansu, and, and I, I believe uh, somebody told me Xinjiang has 24,000 mosques more than the Middle wow. East. Mm. But I don't know if that's true, but it's on Wikipedia, so it must be true, right? Mm. Uh, well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I particularly like that kind of thing. The architecture of places like that just stuns me. Mm. And, and the people, the, the food in, everywhere you go, the food is different, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, yesterday you were eating one thing and tomorrow you're eating something different. Mm. It is really quite an amazing, diverse uh, country and it, it quite often you find yourself in minority regions. Uh, last last year, my wife and I went to Guangxi and cycled for seven weeks through um, wow. the the Miao autonomous regions. Um, mm. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Hunan in the Tujia Miao autonomous region of mm. Xinxia or Xiangsha, sorry. <clears throat> and I spent uh, I was I was there a week with a media commitment, which is great because I get to see things I wouldn't normally see. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I followed the mayor for a week. Or I, think, <laughs> oh, no, I guess you would call her the prefect. No, 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 <laughs> no. no. I, I was in a car. <clears throat> I caught the fast train. Sometimes, sometimes I've used modern technology. Mm-hmm. I caught the fast train there and was picked up in a in a, in a nice car and taken to the hotel. And I was it was staying in the I was in a suite. In the Crown Plaza, but they didn't book me a suite. Mm. But the hotel, I don't know if they knew who I was or what. I'm not anyone special, but the hotel upgraded me. So there were eight or nine people there, and I was the only one in a, a two-room suite Ooh, la, la. In, in the Crown <laughs> Plaza Hotel. Yes, thank you, Crown Plaza. A little plug there. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. But that, I mean, that was that was a completely different sort sort of journey. But I spent the time in the minority region looking at the way China helps ethnic minorities, mm. the way China supports. Mm. Uh, and it's, honestly, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. To answer Jason's question, 
where is the best part of China? <laughs> All of it. That's a very clever answer. That's it. Well, okay. One of the things I noticed about you, uh, what you do for people online is that you try to show people about their misconceptions about China. You try to explain how China really is versus how it's represented in uh, mainstream media abroad. So I was wondering if you could touch on that a little bit. What are some of the insights that you have gathered up in your 18 years in China about what China is like versus maybe people's misconceptions about what China is like? Okay. I, I came to China with the same misconceptions. I really did. I, I wasn't planning on staying here. I had my eight-month contract and was planning to move on. Mm. Just finalizing that answer, we got off track. I was made redundant in Australia. I'd been 18 years or 17 years with the same company, and mm. uh, they made me redundant. So I had a bit of money in the bank, mm. and I wanted to travel and have someone pay for my travel. So I, I got a, mm. a certificate to teach English and... Um, decided that you know here's an advert for a job I'll I'll have a look at that and that was how I got to Zhongshan mm. and that hasn't changed now <clears throat> to answer the next question I found that when I read the news there is what I would call and I'm being polite here misunderstandings or misinterpretations mm. Mm. now in some cases they are genuine misunderstandings and genuine misinterpretations in other cases they are just mm. lies mm. <clears throat> now I would suggest that probably Two or three percent of what you read in a story about China in mainstream media is based on a fact. That fact mm -hmm. is then misinterpreted, misanalyzed, mm. misquoted. People are often misquoted. You know, the, the, the rivers of blood discussion that Xi Jinping is complete misquote mm. uh, because it, it, it came from the, the English translation of the Monkey King. Uh, you know, stuff like this, is, these are misinterpretations mm. which may very well be deliberate. I can't say if they're deliberate or not. And I never tell someone you're a liar. I just say, well, <laughs> that's not correct. Mm. Mm. And, and that's what I've been trying to do. I was asked on one interview once, why do you stand up for China? And I said, I don't. <laughs> I really do not stand up for China. What I do is I stand up for truth. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. people will look at me and say, you're looking at China through rose-colored glasses. You're looking at China. Uh, there's a reason why. People think there's a reason why I'm either paid I'm coerced. I'm threatened. Mm -hmm. I won't get my new visa. I've got my new visa now. I just got a new visa for three years a few days ago. So I, I, I don't need to say nice things about China anymore. Now, this, all of this is not true. It's a simple fact that I'm a, I'm a daily observer. Now, mm. yes, I am an optimist. Yes, I do see the more positive aspects. But the reason for this, because I studied cross-cultural change management, mm -hmm. I had to study a touch of psychology. Mm. Because I was a police officer, I studied psychology mm -hmm. as well. Um, and we did, when I was a police officer, I didn't know I was studying psychology. I just was. Mm. And, and these things that you don't get formal qualifications in, but what you do get is a great deal of experience. Right. And what I tend to do is I tend to look at people and say, well, why did that person do that? Mm. Rather than look at what that person did, that's terrible. Mm. Exactly. Why did that person do that? Exactly. And why... Why is their reaction different to my reaction? Mm. Now, as foreigners living in China, one of the things, and Jason, you'll attest mm -hmm. to this, you look at something, you say, why the hell do they do this? <laughs> or why the hell do they do that? And, and we do this. It's a natural reaction to something we're not accustomed to mm. seeing or doing. Mm. And when you look at the reasons behind it, you'll see that there's an interpretation that is different. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the big things that I've found is that they're looking at a, a stated fact. This happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that did happen, yes. Uh, I'll give you a great example. 
during the COVID thing in the first in Wuhan a, a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. people were welded into their apartments. Mm -hmm. Yes, a gate to an apartment was welded. Yes, that's the fact. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at the interpretation. I don't know if you guys were both here during that period of time, but you can be guaranteed that you were allowed out only under certain conditions and only through a certain route. Mm -hmm. And when you went out, you had to be checked in and out to make sure that you weren't doing something that uh, might uh, cause a spread of, of the disease. Mm. Now, yeah. all of that is very reasonable and responsible uh, situation. Now, in my own gardens, I live in uh, I live in a public park, actually. And as I say, I've got a mountain behind me, so it's not very big. Mm. We've got probably a couple of thousand people, and we've got five or six entries into this area where I live. Mm -hmm. A community. It's like a village inside of a town. Mm. Yeah. So we've got five or six entrances. And what they did was they blocked off three or four of them mm. and said, if you want to go out, you can. Mm. You can mm. only go out every second day. You can only stay out for two or three hours. You must wear a mask. You must uh, wash your hands. And what mm. they did was they funneled us through certain gates. Mm. And that way they could keep a check on who was going, where they were going, what they were doing, how long they were away. Right. And if anything happened, they knew who'd been out, who hadn't been out. And so if my local shopping center had a, a case of COVID, they could come mm -hmm. straight mm -hmm. to my house and say, you were in this shopping center yesterday. We need you to isolate. And that's mm -hmm. what it was mm -hmm. all about. Mm. It was proper management of large, very large groups of people. Mm. So the misinterpretation was uh, the misunderstanding of a very, very simple, they're welding a gate closed. Mm. Yep, they welded a gate closed. Now, you can call that authoritarian or draconian or whatever you want to call it, but the action of doing that created a situation where COVID was much better mm. managed. So that's mm. why they did it. And it wasn't welding individuals into their mm. apartments because mm. they were sick. <laughs> it's completely the opposite. If anyone was sick, they were yeah. taken away to a hospital or a place where they mm. could be treated. Yeah. And, and so that's what I do. I, 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 I tend to be more corrective. Mm -hmm. and not, I'm not really all that assertive about saying China is this or China is that. It's like mm. the West says China is this, but here's yeah. the truth. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Wow. Long answer. Sorry. You are so eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I I'm really jealous and I'm all going to steal some cues from you, Jerry, because you're definitely, the way that you say things sounds very measured. Mm. One of the videos you did was about Confucius Institutes, which oh, yeah. in some yeah. countries they're welcoming new ones and in other countries they're closing them down. I was wondering if you could uh, share your insights about these Chinese language and culture institutes around the world. Yeah, um, it, particularly America, Canada and Australia, those three countries, uh, they all, they each have an organization that is dedicated to closing down. I think in, oh, uh, in really? America, yeah, well, in mm -hmm. America, there used to be 118 and now I think there's only 20 uh, Confucius Institutes mm -hmm. in America. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the, the saddest part is this, the art of war, know your own enemy. If you, if you really mm -hmm. want to hate China, go ahead and hate China, <laughs> but learn as much as you can about China. And then you can, but obviously the more you learn about it, the less you hate about it. Unless there's a very good reason to hate China. And to be quite honest, there isn't. Uh, although many people in the West, mm. you know, if, if there's, if there's an American evangelist, evangelical uh, follower listening to this, he'd be, he'd be wanting to gun me down, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, but the fact is China, Chinese people 
are very, very happy with their governance, mm-hmm, very mm-hmm, happy mm-hmm. with their governance. You know, and it's not just me that says that, although that's my anecdotal information. Mm. The, uh, there's several Canadian universities, several Australian universities. Well, I can say Harvard did a study for 13-year longitudinal study. It was 94% of people yeah. very, very deeply trust the central government of China. Mm. Well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that, but that's a good way of defining it. It was There was deeply trust, and there was trust, and then there was somewhat trust, and they added together to be 90, I think it was 95.6%, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The, the numbers we're not going to quibble over numbers like that because, in fact, it's probably higher now mm. than it was when mm-hmm. that, that report was done. That report's nearly three years old. Mm. And, and it definitely, I remember when Xi Jinping came to power and people said, oh, this is going to be a worry. This is going to be bad. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> and now uh. it's completely the opposite. And I, I had a chat with a very, very wealthy friend of mine a few weeks ago. We're having dinner. And I said, do you remember when she came to power and you told me it was going to be terrible? He said, yeah, how wrong was I? This is a wealthy man who is now even wealthier. Mm. And he says, I don't have to pay people to do the stuff that they're supposed to do anymore. So the corruption has gone. uh, People who are she's enemies are Mm. very often uh, people who have had to flee China. Mm. That's the reason why they're not in China is because they've They've been purged for their corruption. They're they're out of China spending their ill-gotten gains. Mm. Now, going back to the Confucius Institute, the Confucius Institute's a really strange thing because it's certainly no more insidious than the British Council. I worked (laughs) for the British Council and I I know exactly what they do. Uh. Now, I'm not saying the British Council is insidious. I'm saying China is no more so, Mm -hmm. that neither Mm -hmm. of them are. They both are the cultural arm of the Chinese or British government. Mm -hmm. Um, The the Goth Institute is another one in Germany. They do the same thing. They try and uh, not necessarily impose. Sometimes it's imposed. They impose their will or their their culture onto another country. But with China, you can't impose your culture. Chinese people will accept your culture, but it won't. I don't think it will dilute their own culture. I've asked this question of many people mm. about things like, why do you celebrate Christmas when you're not a Christian? And they say, oh, it's good for it's good for business, it's commercial, it's great, mm. uh, and it's a it's a good reason to have a party. Right. And I often ask questions like, do you think there's a danger that that this may uh, cause uh, a, a, a dilution of your own culture? You you would <laughs> celebrate Christmas more than Chinese New Year. And they laugh at me as if that's ever going to happen. Right. But this is what the this mm-hmm. is what the British Council would like. Now, China is not trying to make people into communists. Mm. <laughs> the, the very fact of the matter is the individualistic nature of the psychology of most Americans, Canadians, and Australians is that they will never ever be communists. Mm. They're individualists. They're not communal livers. They're not communal people. They don't think psychology. They don't think like that. Now, the nature of the Confucius Institutes is that they are pushing out the Chinese culture. They'll teach you what Qingming is. They'll teach you about dragon boat racing. They'll teach you about Chinese music. They'll teach you Chinese language. How is that going to turn you Mm. or your children into a communist? It's not. And even if it did turn your children into a communist (laughs) or a socialist, is there something so wrong with that? Mm. Having someone in your family who cares more about Mm. their community than their individual self. Going back to what you said, there was a Confucius Institute at my undergraduate. uh, And I I went to there. All they did was teach 
Chinese language. So it was like, oh, do you want to sign up for a class? It's from this time to this time. Mm. And all they did was teach Chinese language. Yeah. And it was like, you come when you want, you don't come. It's just like up mm. to you. It's like, yeah. if do you want to learn about what Dragon Boat is? Come. I wish I'd had that opportunity. I, there was no yeah. ideological stuff no. there at all. But the next thing is that the other allegation is that they, um, they delete certain parts of Chinese history and not tell you about the, the bad things that the Communist Party have done. Well, the fact is they don't delete anything. They just don't talk about stuff. Right. China hasn't expunged this. Well, why Why would you? Yeah, the British Council is not like, this is what we did in South Africa or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the British Council don't tell you that they the Brits invented concentration camps and put them all through South Africa. They don't tell you that they they created the slave trade across the Atlantic to from Africa to the, the Americas. Mm. They don't tell you those things. Mm. But we know that they exist because the history books tell us. Mm -hmm. China's in the same position. Now, a lot of Chinese people, they, they say that oh, Chinese people will never talk about the Cultural Revolution. Mm. Well, that's absolute bullshit. Of course they do. They talk about <laughs> they talk about it all the time. Yeah, generations yeah. of yes, literature it's, it's, about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there are aspects of Chinese history that definitely not best forgotten, but best learned from. And mm. that's what China has done. Now, people keep attacking me and saying, yeah, but what about this incident? <laughs> and I just say, well, yeah, but yeah, that was... X amount of years ago. Why can't you find something more current to talk to me about? Right. You know, we're talking about three, four, five different leaders ago. Mm. Now you're saying, what about, what about? And I'm asking you, what about now? Mm -hmm. you know, it, health is better in China than it's ever been before. Uh, longevity, the, the lifespan of mm -hmm. Chinese people is higher than most of the developed world now. Um, the income, the individual income, the global, the, the, inter, the national GDP, the infrastructure, everything is better than it was before. Mm -hmm. And if you ask any person, and I often do this, ask any person in China, is China better than it was when your parents were your age. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think it's going to be like when your children are your age? Oh, it'll be better still because we've got better education, we've got better health. And, and this is how they look at it. Chinese people have no gripe with their government. Mm. There's none. Now, the West can say, but they don't have free speech, they don't have a vote. <laughs> well, why do we need that? We're a communal society. Right. And, and the communal people decide what's best for our community. Mm. Now, the community could be like our village where I live, and we have a community office here. They're very helpful, very useful people to know. Mm -hmm. um, we just went and saw them because there was a typhoon came through here and there was a tree causing problems, mm. and the, the tree's gone now. So they're managing stuff like that because it, we work on a communal level. Like in Chinese culture, people don't like to talk about bad things out loud. It's just not part of the way we like to express ourselves. Yeah. And also, especially like saying like dirty or bad things about yeah. um, the leadership or anybody, it's, we don't enjoy it. And you know, this is, this is the Chinese way of dealing with things. It's very informal, first of all, mm -hmm. but it's very quick. You know, they, they do delete stuff on the internet mm -hmm. and people say, well, that's not freedom of speech, but they're deleting hate speech. Right. They're deleting insulting speech. 
They delete. A lot of it is also like right. incorrect. So recently, they delete lies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They de- they delete lies. Exactly. So recently, on some Chinese platforms, if you want to talk about medicine, you have to prove to the platform that you're qualified to talk about medicine. Yeah. I think that's a really positive thing. Instead of just having everyone say, "Well, the vitamins yeah. that I take are blah." Well, who are you? I'm sorry. So actually, in China, you have to actually know what you're talking about. That, that's a that's a new one, and I like that. I approve right. of that wholeheartedly. I made a I made a video on that uh, about the environment being cleaner, mm. and I actually linked it to several different articles. Uh, and and I've, I post I post these articles on a, a platform called Medium.com. So if people prefer reading to watching, go to Medium.com and search for Jerry Gray. Mm. You know, we're almost out of time, Jerry. Where else can we find you? Okay, um, Twitter, YouTube, and Medium. Medium. What are you called on Twitter? Uh, Twitter, I've, I've got two, two accounts on Twitter. One is supposedly less political than the other. <laughs> Jerry's Take on China and um, Jerry's China. And um, I'm, the idea was that one would be less political and one would be more political, but it hasn't worked that way. On my YouTube, I have two, and they're, bo- they're both on the same account. So <laughs> And those one is political and one is mm, not. Yeah. Uh, I've I've been able to keep them apart. Uh, to just to follow what Jason was saying earlier, I think maybe a lot of people like outside China don't understand how how easy it is to not say certain things. For example, like people in the states really value their freedom of speech, yeah. but it's not too difficult for Chinese people to not say certain things that they don't think it's nice to mm. say. You know. Yeah. To, to not like bicker in public, to not say bad things about other people. This yeah. is not politics. This is like culture. We just don't enjoy doing that. Yeah, it's very much comes down to culture where Chinese people have uh, what they call, um, there's a guy called Gerd Hofstede who uh, is a psychologist. He's analyzed the dimensions of culture. Mm. And one of them is called a power distance index is one of the dimensions of culture, mm. power distance index. You could Google that and find mm-hmm. out about it. But effectively, what, what he uh, analyzed was that in China, there is a respect for authority that goes both ways. Mm. The boss knows his place mm. and the worker knows his place. Now, in the West, mm. there's much more equality between the, the boss and the worker. Mm. Now, the same power distance index applies in a school to teachers and students, right. in the home to parents and children. Mm. And it's very, very much a, a, a society of respect mm. for people who have more um, experience, mm. more mm. knowledge, mm. Uh, more age. When I first came here and I met so many kids who said, my dad wants me to do accounting, but I want to be a pianist. Mm. I'd say, well, you, you be, a, be a pianist. Mm. And they said, no, 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 my dad wants me to do accounting. And, and we then immediately switch off our cultural awareness antenna mm. and go to, oh, this guy's brainwashed. No, they're just doing the respect for the family, respect for the teachers, respect for the authority. Mm. Even respect for the police exists much greater here mm. than it does in the West. There's no fear of the police. Mm. There's no fear of the boss. That's true. It's just a different form of respect. And and what you're saying there, baby, mm. is absolutely spot on. Chinese people don't air this in public, mm-hmm. or they do so a lot less than Western people. 
I hate to be the bad guy here, but we are out of time. It's been such a great pleasure having you on. If Jerry's willing to come back, we would love to have you back in the future. I'm having a great time here. So yes, 10 more. (laughs) (laughs) 10 more episodes? Seriously, like for like at least ten more. I want to hear all about Jerry's travels and so many more. Can we? Can we, please? Jerry's okay. Let's work this out. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with this. I like this. This is fun. You're okay with this, right, Jerry? <laughs> as long as Jerry is okay with it, we'll have him back. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you, and thank you, Jason. Goodbye, and thank you. Thank you. Listen into our next episode for more insights and be part of bridging the East and West. Goodbye, guys. Bye. Bye, Jerry. Bye, Jason. Bye.